Welcome to Palm Sunday. I hope you're about to have a great week because we serve a marvelous king. How many of you recognize that perspective is everything? Have any of you ever had a conversation with somebody whose perspective was different than yours? <clears throat> I want to do a little test with you this morning. I want to show you some, some things, some images that depending upon your perspective, you may look at differently than those around you. Let's, let's go with the first one here. First one. How many of you have seen this before? What's the first thing you saw? A vase? How many of you saw faces? Most of you are face people. Face people. Let's move to the next one. How many of you see a beautiful scene with a lake? How many of you see a baby? Oh, I can hear it. It, just, it ripples. It just, your fingers are pointing. Uh-huh. Let's take a look at the next one. How many of you see a duck? How many of you see a rabbit? The first service was almost all duck people. This one, there was more rabbit people. I'm not sure what that says about you. And is there one more? How many of you see a mature woman? I want to be politically correct here. How many of you see the profile of a less mature woman? How many of you don't see anything? Those are the ones that I'm worried about. Perspective is everything. It's everything. And I want you to know that as we approach the scripture today, the perspective of the people that were watching Jesus as he came marching in was different than what we would expect. And I want to try to bring some clarity to that of the perspective. What kind of a king are you expecting? Lord, as we approach your word this morning, we do so with an understanding that you said you would lead us and guide us into all truth. We understand that there was a historical context that took place on this triumphal entry that we have the opportunity to look at differently because of our perspective. So give us clarity, I pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to Matthew chapter 21. I would like to read the passage of Scripture of the triumphal entry and found in verses 1 through 11. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to your daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The place where this takes place is 
near Jerusalem, and it's on the Mount of Olives. And it's on this mountain that Jesus will tell his disciples that he's coming again. It's at the foot of this mountain that Jesus will pray, and the perspiration from his uh, sincerity of prayer will be like great drops of blood. It's on this mountain that Jesus will go back to heaven. And so from this mountain, on this day, Jesus is descending, and he's going into the city of Jerusalem. And the time that this all takes place is during the Passover. And it was a time when the Jews were coming and each of the families were bringing lambs with them that were, they were going to sacrifice. And so I want you to picture in your mind this vast crowd of people that are entering in. They're all coming to Jerusalem. Many of them had the legs of lambs tied and they slung them over their shoulders. Others of them were carrying lambs. All of them knew that they were going to be going to the temple and that these lambs were going to be sacrificed and the blood from them would be the covering of sin for them. And so in this mass of humanity and people carrying animals, and I'm sure that there were lambs that were getting loose and running all over and families trying to run around and grab their lambs as they're coming in. In the mass of this humanity and all of this chaos, the scripture says that Jesus comes. And on this occasion, he is bringing himself, knowing that he is the lamb that is going to cause all the rest of the lambs to be able to live because he's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And so the attitude in which he is riding as he's coming into the city, he recognizes that he is coming, then he's going to change events forever. And in Scripture, this is known as the Lord's triumphal entry. This is the time when Jesus publicly comes to the city of Jerusalem to present himself to Israel as their Messiah and their Savior. Now Jesus has been to Jerusalem many, many times. But this is the last time that he will come. This is the final week of his life. This is the moment when he recognizes that what he is doing can change everything. And he has a perspective when he is coming that is different from the perspective of those that were watching him. Have you ever asked yourself, if this is the triumphal entry... If this is the moment that signals that there should be great celebration, then why is it that within a few days Jesus is going to be tried and crucified? Why is it that everything and all of the attitudes of people seem to change at the end of the week? It's an interesting passage of Scripture. In fact, depending on what version of the Bible that you have, the heading of this passage may either be the Palms passage or it may be the Passion passage. When I'm talking about the palms, Pastor, I'm not talking about palm reading. It's the palms that they are laying out before the Lord because that's what the street was lined with as people were greeting him. And some of you would recognize that years ago, Mel Gibson made a movie called The Passion of Christ that he took from this particular passage. It's interesting because I have a full life study Bible. And on the bottom of each of my pages, there is a list of things that give me some historical context and, and some Greek word study that deal that help me in, in studying. But when it comes to these 11 verses, they are ignored in my full life study Bible because it's a difficult perspective to take. How do you call something a triumphal entry when at the end of it, everything changes? And so on this glorious Sunday for all Christians, what goes wrong by Friday? What goes wrong that Jesus will find himself betrayed by his own disciples, arrested by the high priest's guard, accused by a coalition of religious leaders, 
tried by the Roman governor and sentenced to die a death of a common criminal, death by crucifixion. Why did the crowds who lined the street to adore him on Sunday shout crucify him by the end of the week? I believe that today as we go through this that you'll begin to understand a lot of it had to do with perspective. And there was a contrast in the the way that people looked at it versus the way that we look at it today. And if you have a bulletin, there are some points there for you to follow along. But the first is I want you to see the contrast of the processions. The contrast of the perceptions. You might not know that Jesus' procession in Jerusalem on the east side was not the only procession that took place into Jerusalem on that day. Pontius Pilate led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem from the west side. Now, as I mentioned already, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of families that were pouring into the city, and the chaos of what that must have looked like was interrupted on the west side as this procession came through. As he begins to lead, Pontius Pilate leads the Roman soldiers that are coming through on horseback, and I would imagine that the chariots that came and the horses are pushing people to the sides of the road as they're being bumped by these magnificent beasts as this parade comes in the west side. The soldiers that are there, their leather armor is probably glossed to a high shine and their helmets are shimmering in the sunlight and on their sides they have swords that are strapped into their scabbards. Many of them may have been holding on to spears. And then there were those that were marching along behind them that were perhaps carrying bows with arrows across. And all of this, in the middle of this crowd, was to give the image that it doesn't matter what you do, we are more powerful than you are. Drummers beat out a cadence as the marched through the entrance of the city and Pilate, as the governor of the region, was there because he wanted to make sure that this conquered people would have no ideas about trying to rise up and overthrow him. I also would imagine that the Roman soldiers as they're coming in had to have an understanding of what this festival was about. It was a festival that celebrated the liberation of the Jews from the Egyptian empire in the past. And so Pilate had to be in Jerusalem. He had to be there to occupy the land. And they set up a garrison right outside the courts of the sacrifice where they sacrificed in the temple so that everybody that was bringing their lamb for sacrifice would look up and recognize the power of this army to keep them down, to keep them under the thumb. In fact, history indicates that the last major uprising that the Jews had had against them, the Romans came down with such force that they destroyed the whole town of Emmaus. And along the lines of the town, of the, the walkways there, they hung and crucified 2,000 Jews just to tell the people, don't you ever do this again because we are more powerful than you. So the Romans had made their intolerance of rebellion well known. And so on this occasion, Pilate traveled with a contingent of his finest to the stuffy little town where lambs were running everywhere just to show the Jews, we control you. Pilate's entry into Jerusalem was meant to send a message of intimidation and power and might. But there was another procession that the scripture talks about on the east side of town. And in this perception, procession, it says that Jesus came into Jerusalem. And if Pilate's procession was to show military might, Jesus' procession 
was to demonstrate quite the opposite. In fact, we are told in Scripture that Matthew and Mark record his own words, Jesus, as he comes in and he's riding on this donkey and on the colt because the Lord needed them. And Jesus quotes from Zechariah in the ninth chapter, and he says this, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, on the foal of a donkey. But there's more to this description than meets the eye. It's more than just talking about Jesus' transportation because if you turn to Zechariah chapter 9, they recognize, the Jewish people recognize Jesus is quoting just a little bit of a prophecy. And so they would have known in their mind there's more to the prophecy than what he's mentioning and here's what they would have begun to think because here's the way that this prophecy is described. Verse 8, it says, I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will any oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, and gentle riding on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey. And then in verse 10, the prophecy that the Jewish people would have known about says this, I will take away their chariots. Now, they'd just seen a procession on the other side that had chariots. I will take away their war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. And then you move down to verse 12, and it says, Now I will announce that I will restore twice as much to you. In other words, the people that were watching Jesus come in came. They saw him with the expectation that he was about to overthrow the Romans. This is the time. He's coming. We've got a new king. By the end of the week, we will be in control. And I can't wait to see what he's going to do to overthrow Rome. That was the message that they heard when Jesus came in. That he would deliver them from the oppressor. And they were thinking Rome. So the two processions couldn't be more different in the messages that they convey. Pilate leading the Roman Centurions asserts power and might in the empire of Rome and will crush all who oppose it. Jesus, riding on a young donkey, embodies peace and tranquility that the shalom of God brings to his people. And those who watched that day had to make a choice. Whose power will we choose? It was all a matter of perspective. Secondly, within this, there was the contrast of leadership that was taking place. There's a book that was written by Matt Linsky and Ron Heifetz, and the name of the book is Leadership on the Line, and there was a quote out of that book that I absolutely love. It says this, Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. <laughs> leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate that they can absorb. What was, what was it about the visible leadership of Jesus that went from exciting to absolutely disappointing? from those that were watching in a matter of days. We repeatedly read in the gospel that the majority of the people were following Jesus because of the miracles that they had seen him do. And so they had this image in their mind that because he already had performed miracles, he's got the power to do anything, so we will follow him because of that, knowing that if he can do that, he can overthrow the government. And so they followed him because of his miracles. In fact, you may wonder why throughout Scripture, every time Jesus did a miracle until this last week, he always told people, don't tell anybody. I I laugh at that. 
If you're healing people and you're raising people from the dead and then you say, now don't tell anybody, that's not going to work very well. The reason was because Jesus didn't want their perspective to be skewed by his power because he came for a bigger reason than just to heal people. But because of that, they were following him. We read in John eleven forty five 45 that many of the Jews came to Mary because, and had seen the things with Jesus that he had done and they believed on him because of that. After healing the blind and the speechless in Matthew chapter 12, it, the people considered this question, is this not the son of David? John chapter 2, 11 recorded the miracle at Cana. And it says, Jesus manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. John 6, 2 states that the crowds followed because they saw the miraculous signs that he had done. And so they followed him. Interesting enough, even Jesus tried to point people to the real reason that he had come when in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, it says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth and to prove to you that I've got the power to do that, which is the far more important, I will tell this paralyzed man to get up and take your mat and go home. Jesus tried to draw the distinction between his purpose and their perception, but nobody would listen. How many of you have heard the statement, you're only as good as your last game? You're only as good as your last game. Everybody's a hero until you have a bad game. And so what we see during this week of the triumphal entry to his crucifixion is that the miracles of Jesus were not enough to keep people loyal when they became disappointed. I believe that Jesus, as he's coming in, knew himself to be the Messiah for whom the people were eagerly looking for, and he saw in himself the realization of all of the religious hopes, but at the same time he knew that he was going to be unpopular because his expectations for what he wanted to do and the expectations of those that were crying Hosanna were different, different perspectives. You see, he came as the Messiah to win a greater victory than the victory of that week. He did not yet resemble the conception that the people had of the Messiah. He brought the highest good because he was going to open up the kingdom of God, but the people expected the coming of the Messiah and the manifestations of his benefits would be something that they could enjoy instantly. And if you're not going to do that for us, Jesus, if you're not going to work that way for us right now, then my perception of you was all wrong. I believe that there was actually an inner struggle that took place in Jesus during this time. I believe that we know that he was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he overcame the temptation. And here's why I believe that at least it had crossed his mind to give them what they wanted, even if it was just to overthrow a temporary kingdom, because this is what he says in Matthew chapter 26, verses 53 and 54. Do, don't you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that says that this is the way it must happen? In other words, Jesus is thinking, I could give you what you want, but it would only be a temporary victory, and we would lose forever the opportunity of salvation that he was going to bring. In fact, he decided against this method of asserting his messianic call because he thought about us today and not just those that were around him on that march that day. 
Because if Jesus had yielded the type of leadership that the people wanted that day, he might have advanced his fame, but he would have missed his calling. He would have advanced his fame, but he was missed his calling. For if he would have done what they wanted, he would have confirmed to the humanity that was standing there that he had the power to do what they wanted, but he would have cast us into eternal lostness because his war was a bigger war. The contrast in the leadership is remarkable in this passage. Roman leaders said that they would do everything in their power to hold rule over the people. Jesus, by contrast, had immeasurably more power and might than any army on earth could ever conceive, and he chooses not to use it in order to secure for us a greater good and a relationship with his Father. So by the end of the week, Jesus will have disappointed the crowd at a faster rate than they can stand. And they will turn on him. Even those closest to Jesus, the 12 disciples will either betray him outright or they will abandon him in confusion and fear because their perspective was different. Then there's the contrast of kingdoms. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem may or may not have been planned to occur at the same day as Pilate's procession through the western gate. Whether it was planned or not, the difference between the two kingdoms was unmistakable. The late Emperor Augustus, who had ruled from 31 B.C. to 14 A.D., was said to have been fathered by the god Apollo, conceived by his mother Atiyah. Inscriptions referred to him as the Son of God or Lord or even Savior in some writings. And after his death, legend had it that he was seen ascending into heaven to take his place among the gods. Tiberius, during Jesus' life and ministry, who lived then, also bore divine titles. The emperors would demand not only to be addressed by the common people as God, but they demanded that they be worshipped as gods as well. And so the contrast between the kings and the kingdoms was on display that day in Rome. And although many of the common people thought that they were siding with Jesus, they had sided with him for the very reasons that the other people had sided with Rome. They thought Jesus could do for them what the power of Rome had done for others, which was he's going to make our lives better. He's going to deliver us from the oppression that we are under, and he's going to turn the tables on them, and we will be in power, and we'll get to tell them what to do and hold them down. That's why by the end of the week, the perspective of the crowd had changed completely. Because they begin to realize after his arrest, when he stands there before the people and he won't speak a word in his own behalf, as he is beaten and prepared for crucifixion, they begin to realize, oh no, he's not going to do any of the things that we had wanted him to do. He's not going to do anything to set us free. And now they begin to realize because we participated in the celebration, when he came into town, our life is going to be worse because now the Romans look at us as those that are a part of an uprising and they may very well come after us. And now Jesus has made our life worse. That's why they cried out together, crucified him, because they wanted, at that point, feeling as if Jesus had let them down to, look, to let Rome know we are now on your side again for their own self-preservation because their perspective had changed. They didn't know at that time that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. 
And it contrasts with the kingdom of this world in every possible way. This isn't just simply a contrast between good and evil. The contrast is is between two fundamentally different ways of doing life. Two fundamentally different mindsets and belief systems. Two fundamentally different loyalties. And it's demonstrated in the differences of these kingdoms in these five ways. Number one, it was a contrast of trusts. The kingdom of the world trust the power of the sword and while the kingdom of god trusts in the power of the cross we know that what the sword tried to do then the cross liberates us from today and it was a vastly different contrast in trust the romans held power over people jesus came to give us power to serve people different trusts it also demonstrated a contrast of aims The kingdom of the world seeks to advance one's self-interest and one's own will. In fact, we see it in commercials all the time. You're number one. The only thing that matters is how you feel. Are you happy? Are you getting what you want? While the kingdom of God is centered exclusively on carrying out God's will, even if it requires sacrificing our own self-interest for the benefit of others. There was also the contrast of scopes. The kingdom of the world intrinsically is tribal in nature. It is heavily invested in defending one's own people group. It is invested in defending one's nation, one's ethnicity, one's state, one's religion, one's ideology, or one's political agendas. That is why this kingdom of this world is constantly in a perpetual mess. Because everybody is thinking only of themselves. The kingdom of God comes with a different scope. It is intrinsically centered on simply loving others as God loves them. It's separating ourselves from what can I get out of it and begins to elevate others as to what can I do for you. It's centered on people living for the sole purpose of replicating the love of Jesus Christ to all people at all times in all places without condition because that's what Jesus would have us to do. It also is demonstrated by a contrast of responses. The kingdom of the world is a kingdom that said, I will stand up and it'll be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You do something to offend me and you just watch how I'll react. I'll blow up at you and I'll let everybody know just what I think of you. In fact, I'll find ways to come at you and get revenge on you. And then the kingdom of God comes in a completely different scope, completely different response. And he says, we come carrying the cross, not the sword. We don't return evil for evil. Rather, we manifest the unique kingdom of Christ by returning evil with good because it's like heaping coals of fire on their heads because it's such a vastly different response to the two kingdoms. So rather than retaliate, we seek the well-being of our enemy so that by any method possible, we can reach a heart for the king of kings. And then the last contrast is a contrast of battles. The kingdom of the world has earthly enemies and thus fights earthly battles. The kingdom of heaven, however, has a definition that does not require earthly enemies. In fact, we are told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our enemies are not flesh and blood, 
That we are fighting battles rather against rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers in this present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It's a different battleground when we're serving with the Lord and those that do not. And so the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ came to provide for us that day on his triumphal entry is triumphal to us. But it didn't seem that way to them because their perspectives were all different. They looked at the picture of Jesus and saw something different than what we look at today and see. Oh, hallelujah, that today we can serve the one who came as the Lamb of God himself and told everybody there, you'll never need another lamb because my blood alone will take care of all of your sins. I come with a different kingdom. I come with a different battle. I come with a greater salvation. Oh, hallelujah. Would you stand with me as we sing together? The cross is the final word. The cross has the final word. The cross has the final word. Sorrow may come in the darkest night. The cross has the final word. The cross has the final word. The cross has the final word. Evil may put up its strongest fight. The cross has the final word. The cross has the final word. The cross has the final word. The Savior has come with the Maybe you're here today and you've never had the opportunity of seeing Jesus as the one who is the savior of your soul and you've been carrying the burdens and the guilt of your sin and your wrong for your whole life and today you're feeling a tug on the inside which is the Holy Spirit saying, today's your day. I will set you free because my kingdom has come into your life in a new way. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I'm ready to receive Jesus as my savior. I'm going to ask that you just lift your head and you look at me and I'm just going to simply say I agree with you and then as we conclude the service there will be people that will be here in the front that will be available to pray with you and I'm starting on your far left and my far right and if you're here today and say today's my day would you just lift your head so that I can agree with you I'm not going to embarrass you but I can't wait to introduce you to the king that has come to save your soul as I move now to the left center 
Yes, sir, I agree with you. Are there others this morning? Say, today's my day. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Are there others? This is your moment. Jesus has come to give you a brand new kingdom and a brand new life. Moving now to the other side of the center aisle. Is this your moment? Is this your time? Is Jesus knocking at the door of your heart? Looking into the far right and into the overflow. Is Jesus speaking to you? Is this your time of invitation? If it is, don't turn your back on him because he has come to lead you into a brand new kingdom. I'm going to ask that you would open your eyes and lift your heads and if our altar workers would please make their way to the front this morning. In just a moment, we're going to be concluding this time of the service, but I want you to know that if you are here and you have needs in your life, that maybe it's a physical need, maybe there's other things going on and you just need somebody to join you in prayer today, I want you to know that we believe in a God that answers prayer. He loves you more than you could possibly know and to the the two men that said today's my day I want to invite you to come and talk to one of the men up here who will be glad to help you in the first steps of this new journey of being a follower of Jesus Christ we've been praying for you we've been praying for this moment that God would give us souls so Lord as we approach you today we understand that our perspective is often skewed we don't often see things the way you do and As we look at this triumphal entry and recognize there were people that were cheering you on Sunday, that were cursing you by Friday, I pray that today you would lift up our perspective that we could see that you had a greater good in mind than just trying to change a political system. You wanted to change the universe by allowing me to enjoy eternal life with you because of what you have done. And so today, Lord, I pray that you would touch the hearts and lives of those who responded to this salvation call and those who are still wrestling with the conviction. Father, I pray that throughout this week we will be quick to invite others to the the celebration Sunday when we celebrate the day that changed everything, the day you rose again. Oh God, we are so thankful that you didn't settle for just changing their perspective and calling 10,000 angels and changing a political system but that you followed in obedience to the father and changed our eternity for this we give you thanks in jesus name and everyone said amen